brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to all kinds of writers about writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm speaking to a novelist and former journalist who is most widely known, of course, for his best-selling works of historical fiction, including Fatherland, Munich and the Cicero Trilogy. His new novel, Act of Oblivion, is an epic journey across continents, set in 1660 and telling the story of two colonels crossing the Atlantic and on the run as they're wanted for the murder of Charles I. He has been described as a master storyteller and as the king of the page-turning thriller. And I am incredibly delighted to be able to speak to Robert Harris today. Hi, Robert. Hi, Neil. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, thank you. I'm relieved to have finished my book and to finally be bringing it out. And it is brilliant, oh. I have to say. I mean, as far as page turning going, if I, for some reason, crash my car because I haven't been sleeping because I've been staying up reading your book because it's so addictive, uh, may I sue you? Um, it, yeah, I think actually that's a fair, that's a fair exchange <laughs> for the paperback <laughs> quote. <laughs> <laughs> it's just utterly brilliant. Um, one of the things that I was really interested in, in this book was religion, faith, obsession with faith. So I started searching around the internet for interviews that you'd done with regards to religion. And then, of course, Conclave, of course, the book that you wrote. And one of the things you said was, I'm rather drawn to people who take the more difficult route and try to engage with a greater thing. I have empathy with that. How does that apply to Act of Oblivion, where all of these people are most certainly engaging with a greater thing? Well, one of the difficulties of writing the book was that um, this is an era where people really believed in God, 99% of people. And they believed in it in the way that we believe in science or electricity. And it's very hard to think yourself into that mindset. But this was the only explanation they had for the world around them and for the amount of death. One of the things that struck me writing the novel was how many of the characters, the male characters, were on their second or third wives and how their previous wives had died in childbirth, for instance, and the number of children who then die. You needed some kind of explanation for all of this. So religion is an enormously potent force in a way that it simply isn't for us, for most of us today. And to try and write about that sympathetically, as I tried to write in Conclave sympathetically about the cardinals in the Catholic Church, does require a leap of the imagination. But I find that interesting. I mean, I find it interesting to try and think myself into this totally different mindset. Did it in any way affect or inform your own thoughts about faith? Um, I'm interested in people who have faith because I, I don't really have religious faith. And in a way, writing this book turned me off faith to some degree because I've always thought that in the English Civil War, I would have been... A roundhead. I mean, I would have been on the side of Parliament against the King. And actually writing this book and dealing with the kind of Protestant Taliban or ISIS, as they were, of the Puritans, 
smashing up images, banning music, abolishing Christmas, or, you know, the kind of fundamentalism of it really put me off. And um, to my surprise, I realised that I'm probably one of nature's cavaliers, actually. But it was impossible to write this book without trying to get inside the minds of people who some of whom genuinely, for instance, believed that Christ would come back to earth in 1666, the year of the beast, and there would be a second coming. And, uh, the, you know, the uh, Republican Commonwealth Protestant dream would be resurrected. They're interesting people, but you've got to somehow get inside that head. How does being a former political journalist, actually, I don't think you're ever former a journalist, you're always a journalist, how does that inform you being an author? Oh, I think the desire to communicate. You discover a story, you research and write, invent a story, and then you want to sort of tell people about it and to tell them in a way that uh, engages their interests. I mean, all my work is really trying to draw people in. I think that that mindset affects everything that I write. And also, I suppose, the habits of a journalist, you are used to ringing people up. Not that I could ring Oliver Cromwell up, obviously, but you're used to sort of um, finding out facts and information. Most of my friends are still journalists, and I regard myself... I mean, I'm more friendly with journalists than I would be with novelists, for instance. I mean, I think that they're, they're congenial company, often quite cynical, funny, well-informed, and that's my tribe. <laughs> uh, so I... You know, I am first and foremost a novelist, but I earned my living as a journalist and I've never forgotten that. What are the politics of active oblivion? Because they're not as Machiavellian as politics of today in the sense that, my gosh, it seems pretty binary. Once you're on the wrong side, death will come for you. The driving force on the victorious side was the army and the Cromwellians with their belief that they were God's chosen. So, yes, you're right, it is binary. Uh, it's essentially a religious war. You have to look at it in those terms. It's, you know, people say there, was, there were economic reasons for it and the rise of the gentry or the, or, the, or the entrepreneurial middle class. And I think there's some truth in that because they were individualists. They didn't believe in the king and bishops and all that sort of hierarchy. And they wanted to break free of the, the structures of society. It's very hard to import the thinking of the English Civil War to the present day, it seems to me. And I've long been interested in it. I think it's an absolutely fundamental event, not only in the history of, of Great Britain, but in the history of the world, you know, that in, the English cut off the head of their king and there were a republic for 11 years in the 17th century. Actually, is an extraordinary thing. And it was the beginning of it. You know, it marks a, a shift, but it's an enormously difficult subject to write a novel about. And there aren't many novels about it, contemporary novels about it. So when I hit on this idea of telling it as a chase, essentially, that these two guys signed the King's death warrant and are then hunted down by the victorious, finally returned royalists, that seemed to me a way in. And one thing that you asked me about being a journalist, I think one thing that I constantly do is find a complex story and trying to find a way in, you know, to, to draw people in, to it. And that's one of the things that I tried to do in Act of Oblivion. I was intrigued by um, a passage whereby you describe the hunter-in-chief, as it were, the one who is driving this, 
with this zeal to find these regicides, that he is suffering from what would be called in modern parlance chronic depression, or certainly a form of depression. Why was that important to add that into the story? Well, that's one of those things that just... that one of the joys of being a a novelist rather than a journalist is that characters start to come alive on the page. And, you know, the novel began when I just read something, I think on Twitter, talking about the greatest manhunt of the 17th century. And it it just seemed such a bizarre concept, interesting. There was this huge manhunt, but there was no evidence of who the manhunter was. I mean, someone must have coordinated this search, which caught dozens of men and ended in terrible bloody executions and went on for years. So I invented the character who's on their tail. That was the first thing. I thought, well, I must invent a regicide hunter. And then I have to give him a particular motivation for hunting these two men, Colonel Wally and Colonel Goff, who are the central figures in the novel who go on the run in New England. And so he's a, he's a widower. He's quite lonely. He's quite alienated. And suddenly he began to come alive, and he seemed to me quite a modern figure, that he despises the Puritans with their awful fanaticism. But at the same time, he's too intelligent not to see the corruption of the court and of the king. So he's suspended in between these two worlds. He doesn't have religious faith, very, very rarely for that time, but some people didn't. And it seemed to me that such a character would be prone to depression and to black dog, as he called it and others have called it. And and so, you know, that made him, for me, an interesting character. And one of the problems, as I wrote the book, is it was hard not to feel too sympathetic to him, which I didn't really want the reader to do. But I did feel that he is like a modern representative, in a way, dropped into the 17th century. What are you trying to, to lead us into thinking about these characters because you don't write in a simplistic way. You're not trying to say, well, these are good guys and these are bad guys because there's all elements of badness. and I'm yet to find great goodness, but I mean, there's elements of good and bad in in them all. What do you want us to think of these men? Because it is predominantly men. First of all, I think I want to give everyone a, a fair shot, you know, with their point of view and who they are and why they behave as they do. So I, I, I don't really want to guide the reader towards sympathy for one side or the other. I merely want to try to bring to life this extraordinary story and to try as best I can to put these people in the context of their time and let them explain how it is that they feel. I've discovered in the novels that I've written set in the past that the best thing is simply to try and ignore hindsight and just imagine yourself into their heads and how they feel at any given moment. And in their actions comes all the clues to their characters. And also to give an account of the extraordinary Puritan communities in America that are very much the beginning of the modern United States. I mean, in these religious fanatics and their belief and their paranoia and the rest of it, and their feeling that they're extremely special and they carry guns and they're independent. You you see the DNA of modern America, um, you know, right there at the very, at the very beginning. And that's, some, that's something else I wanted to try and bring out in the novel. Did you see those parallels from the very start? 
and you wanted to represent those? Or was it something that became more and more apparent to you the more you read about it? No, it's very much it happened as I wrote the book. Uh, you know, I started with a very, as I often do with a novel, just a simple concept. Two men, one age 60, one age 42, a father-in-law and a son-in-law, the older man Cromwell's cousin, colonels, flee England because they're in danger of being hanged, drawn and quartered, pitch up in the United States and go on the run and live almost like Anne Frank in, in, in Holland, you know, in attics, hidden away by sympathisers, and someone comes after them. So my basic thought was, this is a good story, you know. This is very unusual, really. So I set out to tell that. and But the moment you start telling that, of course, you have to invent the people who were hiding them. Well, why would they hide them? Who are these, who are these guys? Because they were risking a lot as well. And, uh, you know, the moment you do that, then you, you, you start to describe the embryonic United States. This is New England. This is all these places um, that are now familiar uh, to us. Um, Harvard College has just been built. In the course of the book, New Amsterdam, the Dutch colony becomes New York. You know, you feel you're in at the birth of America, but I didn't plan that. That's simply what happened. I mean, that's what these people observed when they were there. You spoke earlier about becoming perhaps more of a cavalier than you would have been a roundhead from writing this book. What about your attitude towards the existence of a royal family? Well, when I was younger, and inevitably more radical and left-wing, I was a Republican. And indeed, I think logically, Republicanism makes sense. Why should someone be a family be elevated in this way, given power and privilege uh, purely by accident of birth? And isn't it sometimes when you look at the young prince who's going to end up inheriting uh, George, you think this guy's got a life sentence? You know, you know, you feel almost sympathy. I mean, it's sort of trapped in this role. So intellectually, of course, I am, you know, I can see the virtues of a republic. Practically, as I've gone on writing about politics, politics isn't rational. I mean, that's one thing I have discovered. You know, a family that can embody, as it were, human life and existence that we can identify with, bitch about, admire, celebrate, mourn, despise, fulfills a human need and is useful in that it separates that aspect of the state from the daily politics. Crazy though the system is, one of the things that comes out of the novel, I think, is we are rather stuck with the monarch. I mean, they cut off Charles I's head. There was, as it happened, a man of enormous charisma and fame, Oliver Cromwell, who had the stature to impose himself and be accepted, even by people who didn't like him as a kind of monarchical figure. But the moment he was dead, the chaos. And so they invited the king back, or the Charles I's son came back and became Charles II. It was simply an easier way to organise life. And we, it seems to me that we were inoculated as a country against republicanism by the 11 years when we didn't have a king, because we had a military dictatorship followed by chaos. So I think we're stuck with a royal family. I would just say, oddly enough, that the, the great Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm, who I happened to have a conversation with only a week or two before he died, 
The last thing Eric said to me was that the best societies to live in were constitutional monarchies. Well, you know, I mean, if that's good enough for the greatest Marxist scholar of his era, um, I think it's probably good enough for me. What was the most challenging aspect of the dialogue, of getting into the mind of how 17th century people used language? A novelist has to cheat a bit. I mean, I construct my own world and I want people to believe it, you know, believe in it and go into it. But if I tried to reproduce authentic 17th century speech, I think it would be very hard going. So I, I try to make concessions to that in sentence structure and so on. But I took as my model Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons, which gives you a very convincing feeling that you're with Thomas More and Henry VIII and so on, without lapsing into, uh, you know, Tudor speak. And similarly with this book, I've tried to make the dialogue not quite like modern speech, but at the same time familiar enough for it not to slow up the story. I remember a few years ago, I was trying to learn French again, not very successfully, the tutor saying that French was a little like the language of 17th century England in its structure. And so the biblical phrase, as translated, obviously, in the King James Bible, they know not what they do, is French, just as the French speak now, and it's not modern English, which is they don't know what they're doing. So I would try and have people speak in that sense. They know not what they do rather than they don't know what they're doing. And then I had the Oxford English Dictionary and I would try to avoid using words which weren't in use in the 17th century. So, I mean, maybe some have slipped through, but by and large, I tried to make sure that I only use words that were current at the time. The 17th century was certainly a brutal time, wasn't it? A violent time. Writing about being hung, drawn and quartered and what they did to people back then to show the dominance of them and the utter humiliation of them. What was that like to research and then to write about? Well, it is extraordinarily a horrible death and protracted. And as you say, it was designed to be the ultimate appalling way to go. It is shocking to read accounts of what it was like, the sadism of it. And I have tried in the book to, to give some sense of what it was like without sort of dwelling on it in a kind of way which I think would be turning it into entertainment. I had to put it in because that was what happened to you and that was what you were f fleeing from and indeed what some of these men embraced. I mean, they thought that was the more the pain, the more the humiliation, the more they emulated Christ's suffering on the cross, the quicker they would get to heaven. And it was similar to the terrorist ISIS mentality that it was a quick route to paradise. And one of the reasons that Cromwell's army was so successful in the Civil War, and they had the extraordinary kind of drive that led them to cut off the King of England's head was this belief. Um, they weren't scared of death. 
And there's a great phrase of Seneca's, I think, the man who is not afraid to die will always be your master. And that's why one of the reasons why Cromwell's shock troops, the cavalry, smashed through uh, the, the royalist lines because they actually were perfectly prepared to die. So the whole business of hanging, drawing and quartering has to be put in that mindset as well. Most of these guys who died, I think there were 12 or 13 who were hanged, drawn and quartered, none of them kind of wept and wailed and went to pieces. Most of them made speeches from the scaffold and one of them, General Harrison, actually worked his arm free while he was having his um, stomach pulled out and uh, hit the executioner in the side of the head and had to be finished off quickly as a result. So, you know, these were tough guys. What are you constantly drawn towards, Robert, in terms of the human condition and human behaviour? I think that one of the things that I firmly believe, having written novels that span, you know, millennia, is that basically that human beings don't change very much, that there are recognisable types throughout history, so that I think that one can see in the religious fanaticism of the Protestants, of the extreme Protestants, the Puritans, the same sort of uh, mindset that one can see with the religious extremism today. And in the time of Cicero and the Roman Republic, you can see the types of politicians and the kind of behaviour of men striving for power that you still see today, and that one should not ever condescend to the past. If you take Rome as an example, we don't have better oratory than with Cicero. We don't have better poetry than Catullus and Ovid. We don't have better philosophy. We don't have better architecture. We should never look down on these times, and it's the same with the English Civil War, the extraordinary bravery, the tremendous clash of ideas and ideals, and the same kind of problems that come from trying to organise power. And I think that that probably has been my great theme as a writer, having been a political journalist. How do you organise power in a society? How do you make sure that the psychopaths don't get in charge? How do you split power, share it? How do you control it? You know, and this leads you directly into human nature and it's it's essentially unchanging quality, which you see when you start dealing with people vying to, to get control of a state. What about class in all of this? You as a state school boy who went to Cambridge and then of course being a political journalist at the BBC, which is when you were there full of Oxbridge types, I can imagine. BBC News is fairly full of them now. What is your attitude towards that, towards class and power? It's funny because, you know, I thought you know, that it had more or less gone. In my life, we had the Prime Ministers, Harold Wilson, Edward Heath, uh, James Callaghan, Margaret Thatcher, John Major. All of these were state-educated, school-educated premiers. Then along comes Tony Blair, who's the first private school prime minister since Alec Douglas Hume in 1964. And then you get David Cameron and you get, obviously, uh, Boris Johnson as well. And suddenly we're back in an era of class and a kind of a sense of entitlement to rule. And that has been something that I never expected to see back. And uh, it just proves that 
history is not a straight progression, you know, going you know easily forward, but but loops back on itself. And, you know, I mean, I feel that we're experiencing that now in this country, you know, that it's not been a, a simple straight progression, that clearly the country is in a bit of problems, some difficulties now, economically and politically. Well, at the time of recording this, we won't be aware of who will be the next leader of the Conservative Party, but the battle is between a public school boy, son of a GP and a a pharmacist and a state schoolgirl who went on to become foreign secretary. To, to a degree, this represents a kind of radicalism of the Tory party, oddly. There's a great phrase of Bertolt Brecht's. Uh, he says, communism isn't radical. It's capitalism that's radical. It's a very good line. And I think that the fact that the Tories, by the time this podcast comes out, will probably have their third female leader, and the Liberals and the left-wing parties have not, never had a female leader, is extraordinary. And if the Tories don't elect a female leader, they'll have elected a man with Indian heritage. So, again, you have to hand it to the Conservatives. They don't care. I mean, you know, it's about winning. And to that extent, they're catching the left on the hoof, rather. You know, they're making them look trapped. And I find that impressive, actually. But the class thing is different. The class thing is definitely back in this in this country in a way that I hadn't expected it to recur. In what aspects do you think it's back? Because, of course, you mentioned Cameron and Boris Johnson, but, of course, Tony Blair went to private boarding school, didn't he? He did. And I think it was Blair that changed everything because I think that when people thought... You could have the British Labour Party led by a man who'd been to a private school. That was like a green light for the Tories that they could do the same. And so you got a choice. You got, I mean, it wasn't just Cameron. It was Osborne and all the people around him. It, it was a public school boy. And I, really, public school boy is right. Government and very Oxbridge. Very, I recognise these people from my own time at uh, Oxbridge. The the kind of student conservative association, the playing games, the nothing's really that serious. And bear in mind, you know, that we had a prime minister and a chancellor and then another prime minister who'd been in the Bullingdon Club. I mean, this is beyond, you know, you know, being clever and getting to Oxbridge. These are the guys who put on fancy dress, insult waiters, wreck restaurants and glory in a kind of, you know, primitive, masculine, tribal roar of public school education. I mean, that is something that's not been addressed enough, I think, in the discussion of this country. I would never have thought that possible when I was uh, a student. So when you go back to the 17th century, and of course there's aspects of barbarism and this belief in faith as an absolute, and then you look at class, what progress do you see? I, I don't really believe that things necessarily get better. I think that that's one of the things that a lot of us living in this country now sort of feel be it the result of the pandemic or the global energy crisis or climate change or the war in the Ukraine or Brexit or the rise of populism, whatever you want to say, it definitely feels as though we've gone back in some way. And one of the things that's always stayed with me is a book written by Hugh Trevor Roper, the historian. He wrote a book called The European Witch Craze of the 16th and 17th Centuries, which sounds a pretty dry title, but it has this 
remarkable beginning in which he says that in this period, after the so-called Dark Ages, after the Renaissance and the Reformation, in Europe, in civil, particularly in Germany, in civilised northern Germany, 40,000 people were burnt as witches. And the superstition of witchcraft was outlawed in the so-called Dark Ages by the Catholic Church. And he said this is proof that the idea that civilization just relentlessly moves forward into enlightened times, it doesn't work like that. And it stayed with me, that fact. And, and I think, you know, it's something else which haunts the back of this novel is the superstition and the violence and the, and the sense of being trapped in this kind of cycle. And I mean, obviously, in many ways, we are more civilised. We don't put people to death by hanging, drawing and quartering, for instance. But we, we still have the capacity to... No, but other parts of the world, they execute people, don't they? They do, and they execute them often with great cruelty as well. So, you know, the, the idea that, that human beings as a species, Homo sapiens, is getting is somehow evolving in a Darwinian way and becoming more and more enlightened, and uh, you know, I don't think that that's true at all. I think we're still driven by the same basic, uh, simple emotions. Now we asked you to bring a few things with you to talk about, not physical things. We always do this on the Penguin Podcast, but we've broadened it out, and I wanted to ask you somewhere. You were happy, or indeed you are happy. Yeah, um, after I finished my novel Pompeii in 2003, uh, I'd spent a long time, I'd been five years before I'd published a novel, so we had, I suddenly announced to my wife, I was able to say, oh, i finished, we can go on holiday. And we had four children then, and she found a, a, a villa in France in a, in a kind of domain, as they call private domain, where we had a nanny to look after the kids so we could have a proper holiday. And it was so terrific that before we left, I found a nearby house and bought it. I mean, much to her astonishment. And we renovated it. And we had it for 17 years. And we just, for summer holidays, the kids, we just, I used to book cheap Ryanair flights and we'd fly down there. And we'd stay for six or seven weeks. And it was just, it was wonderful, you know. The kids used to go off and play with the French kids there. There were great restaurants around, and it was just um, blissful. In the end, in 2020, we sold it because the children had grown up and they stopped coming so much, and it began to feel slightly melancholy. But if I was to look back on a particular, literally, sunlit period, it would be those holidays down on the coast of France, near Ier. Uh, looking out to sea to the Mediterranean, you know, going to beach restaurants, swimming in the sea. And that, you know, that was a very happy time, a golden time, really. And something that changed you, Robert? Well, I had this idea for a novel, the first novel that I ever wrote, Fatherland, and um, but I didn't really have a clue as to how to write it. It was, you know, it was an idea, what if Hitler had won the war? I didn't want to set it in England, you know, um, like Len Dayton's essays. GB, because you know, he'd done that very well. I wanted really to set it in Germany or Europe. I couldn't think how to do it. I didn't know how to proceed. And then one day, a bookshop near to the house in London had a shelf full of Baedeker guides, old ones, you know, back to the 19th century. And among these was the Baedeker Guide to Germany in 1936, which had been brought out to encourage English tourists to go for the Berlin Olympics. 
and it's essentially a guidebook to Nazi Germany. I mean, everywhere's, you know, there's Adolf Hitler Platz and there's, uh, you know, there's a kind of complete codded modern history of Germany talking about the day of national reawakening and so on. And it's it, what I loved about it is it's a book written without any hindsight. It's written, this is a photograph of what Germany was like in 1936 if you just went as a visitor and you strolled across Adolf Hitler Platz and, and so on. And, and that really made it possible for me to write Fatherland and in a way to write the other books that have followed. Just taught me that that's, when you're in the present moment, you don't know what's coming. And that, so that Baedeker guide changed me. It enabled me to write Fatherland and it enabled me to then write uh, the books that have followed. Now, something you should have thrown away, Robert. This is about my, the oldest possession that I have. In fact, I'm sure it is. I mean, the one that's been in my possession the longest. Uh, when I was about uh, 12, 13, I can't remember absolutely, I did a paper round and I earned and saved up £10. And I lived near Nottingham and went into Nottingham and there was, an old, there was a shop that sold old typewriters. And I bought a Remington portable typewriter for £10 and taught myself to type. And I know I should throw it away because nobody uses a typewriter and it's broken anyway. But for me, just this, it still has a lingering smell of typewriter oil and, and faded typewriter ribbon. And the moment I sniff that, I'm back where I was uh, when I was little. And this was like the most magical thing that you could write and it turned into these letters. And it really was a, it's part of the, my evolution, in, I think, in becoming a writer. And I, I used to type the school newspaper on it. I used to write plays on it. And, I, yeah, I should get rid of it because it is just a ridiculous thing to have hanging around. But I don't think I ever will. I can't, actually. It's, it's part of me. Yeah, why would you? Where, where is it now? Did it follow you to Cambridge? I think it did, yes. I think I still used it at Cambridge to, to, to write type essays. And then it sits now in my study. And, you know, some, from time to time I look over at it. And I ought to get it fixed, actually. But the whole clatter of, of, of typing, the noise that it used to make, and the way that it, I think it forced you to be a better writer. It was harder work and all boring. You had to take carbon copies and get, correct them and retype things. But because you, you couldn't go back and change it so easily, you had to get it right first time. And I think that, uh, although wonderful though it is, word processing software uh, has encouraged lazy writing. And I, I think there is a, there's a certain lack of... Something's gone out of writing uh, fiction, at any rate, I think, a certain crispness and a sharpness. Uh, and I think it's something to do with the fact that books are written on software, that it's so easy to just cut and paste and, you know, the th stuff can come out so easily. I don't think you'd give it quite the care and thought you used to. Sorry, that's a bit of an old fart thing to say, but um, having been... <laughs> well, I've, well, I mean, I you know, I'm getting on, so I've, I, I'm constantly wary of sounding like an old fart. I think it's quite important not to not to do that. So moan about how crap most modern politicians are compared to the ones I used to know, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Although they are crap compared to the ones of 30, 40 years ago. And similarly, I feel it with, you know, these great tools which we have, which are fantastic, in particular research, researching historical novels now, is unbelievably 
easier than it used to be. And I'm surprised this hasn't been written about more. But as someone who's, you know, output has increased as he's got older, a lot of the reason for that is how brilliant the research tools are that are available at your fingertips. But I think one downside is that I think the, the software has encouraged people to be prolix and um, sentences get longer and baggier, paragraphs longer, books longer, you know. And I think when you used to have to type it out by hand, you know, you used to write shorter, tighter and better. What is it that takes you out of your comfort zone? Because you are a multi-award winning, super successful author, but you have to push yourself. I think that this book took me out of my comfort zone. I must say there were times when I was writing it when I thought, what kind of an idiot decides to write a novel about two Puritan colonels on the run in New England in the 17th century? I mean, how much more difficult could I have made it for myself? I mean, these people are not congenial. How can I make them a reader sympathise with them? How can I sympathise with them myself? One of the first things I did was call them, rather than Colonel Wally, Colonel Edward Wally and Colonel William Goff, I called them Ned and Will, which I think they would naturally have called one another. And so that, right from the just the name, that made it easier. It's about Ned and Will on the run. Okay, they're Puritan colonels and they've got some pretty crazy ideas, but in the end, they are two human beings. And Will is married to Ned's daughter, and so they've got that bond. And then it, it was slightly then, a little touch of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid on the run from the posse after them across America. So that was a kind of breakthrough for me. That made it possible to open up the material. But I was certainly outside my comfort zone. And indeed, the one thing I would say for myself as a novelist is I have tried to, I've written in lots of different periods. I've written in present tense, first person, third person, written books set in the future, contemporary times, ancient times. I have tried to vary the length and line, as it were, you know, to deal with different things. And I've enjoyed doing that, and that has that has stretched me, I think. So I don't really have a comfort zone to that extent as a writer, except, I suppose, I can't imagine not wanting to be fundamentally a storyteller to try and draw people in and to entertain them. A song that moves you, Robert? It isn't really a song, because I think that after a time, you know that thing where you have a song and you just listen to it obsessively, and after you've listened to it obsessively, you, you can't really quite hear it again. The one piece of music that I found that I must have listened to well over a thousand times, I would think, is a piece by Bach, a, 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 a very complicated piece for four harpsichords. But the version I particularly like is played on four pianos. And one of the pianists, oddly enough, is the former Chancellor of Germany, the late Helmut Schmidt, who was rather like Edward Heath, a, a musician, you know, he had a hinterland. And it's absolutely, I could listen to it, I will listen to it another thousand times if I if I get the chance, uh, because of its complexity, and yet at the same time, it has a joyful simplicity to it. And I came across it 
many years ago, decades ago, and often I have a piece of music which I associate with writing a book, and, and that one was the one I listened to endlessly when I was writing my novel about the Dreyfus affair, an officer and a spy. Incidentally, it's not a very difficult piece of music. I think anybody who heard it first time would enjoy it immediately. Yeah, that, for me, is Bach's uh, Concerto for Four Harpsichords, played on four pianos. And something that reminds you of home... I have this alternative home to the home that I really love, and that is in my head. And there's a great line of um, Martin Amos's when he was asked, um, how can you be a novelist? And he said, I'm tempted to reply to someone who asked me that, how can you deal with unmediated reality? And I think that's a very good answer. And as my life has gone on, I've retreated more and more into a world where I can mediate my own reality. And the incredible wonder of the this age is if you travel around with a, a laptop, which is my, reminds me of home, it gives me access to that whole world instantly. And if that's not too sudi an answer, I would say that carrying around a laptop on which I can hold all the novels that I've ever written and all the research for all the novels I've ever written is my kind of world. And it's rather like, you know, Bach might have travelled around with a harpsichord or something on that instrument. He could create his own world. And from a laptop, from the word processing and from the access to information, I can keep spinning my own worlds. I could have spent another hour just drawing more out of you with regards to you withdrawing into your own imagination but sadly we've run out of time uh, Robert thank you so much it's been incredible talking to you and I'm so glad you can join us and thank you the listener wherever you are don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode and you can leave us a review too and help get the word out and finally as ever if you want to find out more about this podcast go to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts I'm Nihal Arthanaika. I shall see you soon. Oh,